Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is part two of episode 35 in the book of John, entitled Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, where we discuss John chapter 17, verses 1 through 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses today? What a glorious, incredible chapter John 17 is. Mm. What an amazing way to look at the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. Now, the language of high priestly doesn't show up in this chapter. It's really uh, taken from other places like the book of Hebrews, Mm. where Jesus is our great high priest. He always lives to intercede for us. And to have a sense of how Jesus prays is amazing. This is the longest prayer of Jesus we have and to be able to walk through it. And one of the most exciting things is to apply our knowledge of this, that if we ask anything according to the will of God, he hears us, First John says, and we have what we have asked. Well, we swing and miss on our prayers. We don't ask properly. We don't ask for the right things. We don't ask in the right way. None of that is true of Jesus. So what that means is everything in this chapter that he asks for, he's going to get. of it. Mm. And that's pretty exciting to go line by line. Even when he prays for unity, he's going to get that. He's going to get the disciples one. So today we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' prayer. We're not going to get through the whole thing. It's going to be a thrilling journey. Absolutely. Well, let's read John 17, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they, re- they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So over these first five verses, Jesus really has been has been praying specifically about this idea of glory. Yeah. In verse six, it shifts now, it mm-hmm. seems, and Jesus begins to pray for uh, his disciples, those who would follow him. Yeah, let me give you a three-part outline of the whole chapter. Sure. So basically, verse one through five, he prays for himself and his own glory, you know, that kind of thing. He's praying for himself to finish the, the task and to receive his glory. Um, verses six through 19, he prays for the 12, basically, his immediate 12. These, mm. I think, in particular, I wouldn't extend it out to the, 100 plus people in the upper room. I think he's specifically praying for, at that point, the 11, um, yeah. you know, the apostles. And then part three, from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, he prays for all believers throughout all ages of, of, of church history. Yeah. So that's the three-part outline. Go ahead. Yeah, it's helpful that that transition uh, in verse 20 is clear. He says, I do not ask for these only, mm-hmm. but also for those who will believe. As we get into verse six here, what does Jesus mean 
when he says, he's revealed God's name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yeah, so he put God, you know, in, and it does say your name. So he said, I've revealed your name. So I think what the name just means, the summation of all that God is, mm. his, his, um, the way he's choosing to present himself to the world. I unveiled that, yeah. I revealed. So that, that revelation language, that's also related to glory. That it's like you're, it's an unveiled glory. I, the incarnate son of God, I, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, mm. I have unveiled your name. I have made you who you are obvious to the elect. And specifically these, these the 12, um, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So these are the elect, they're taken out of the world. That's what the word church, ecclesia, means, those called out from. So we're called out of Satan's dark kingdom, called, called out, out of the dark world. These people, these elect, I have revealed you, your name, to them. And, mm. and the way I know that that's happened effectively is they've changed how they live. Now they're obeying your word as a result of that revelation. So you mentioned that giving language. In what sense had the Father given the disciples to the Son? And mm -hmm. why do you think Jesus mentions the disciples' obedience here? Right. So the election, I believe, as in Reformed theology and also from Ephesians 1, happened before the foundation of the world, that all the elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son. They belong to the Father. They, they are given to the Son for the purpose of the Son dying for them, saving them, and effectively giving them back to the Father. As we learn from 1 Corinthians 15, that, that Jesus kind of sums everything up and gives it all back to God so that God may be all in all. So basically, it's a kind of a U-turn or a round trip, but the, the elect belong to the Father because he made them. He hands them to the Son so that he may save them. And then the Son gives them back glorified so that God may be all in all. So, mm. and, and our obedience is is clear evidence of our salvation hmm. so uh, the fact that our lifestyle changes our, our attitudes and actions change in obedience to God's word is proof that we are being saved hmm. now it seems that it's important for the disciples to know that what was given to Jesus came from the Father mm -hmm. and that the Father sent the Son why why would that be important for them to understand here yeah well because I think the essence of our salvation is to go from being Godless to being God centered um, to to being effectively atheistic um, independent doing our own thing like Adam hiding from God in the garden um, to bring us back to God he brings us back to God um, mm -hmm. and so part of that is realizing how everything comes from God there, there's nothing in the universe that God is not relevant to God's the creator the sustainer the ruler uh, all things belong to him and are going back to him from him and through him and to him are all things so that we would really understand that that's essential to our salvation hmm. so what does it mean to receive the words Mm -hmm. Jesus teaches, and do we have access to the very words of Jesus today? We have access to some of them. Uh, John himself said Jesus did many other things and said many other things, um, uh, we would have to say. But the words we need, we have, mm -hmm. and they're recorded for us in, in the pages of Scripture. And so we have the words, but the words, all of the words started with the Father. Everything starts with the Father. So the words Jesus spoke, the words the prophets spoke, the words the prophets and apostles wrote, all of them came from God. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that, that intense God-centeredness. Every word comes from God. 
So interestingly, Jesus seems to stress that he's not praying for the world. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Jesus love the world? How do we reconcile verses like John 3.16 with right. John 17.9? Well, yeah, John 17, 9 is a vital verse for, for Reformed or Calvinistic theology and what I would have to say strong evidence for the most controverted point of the five points of Calvinism, which is that Christ died only for the elect. Mm. And this is proof, uh, I think, because Jesus says openly he's not praying for the world. And so uh, what this means, he's praying for the elect that the Father gave him out of the world. So the prayer here, I think, has to do with salvation. It's an effective prayer. Father, save them. Think about that. Wow. If Jesus prays that, what's the Father going to do? He's going to yes. save them. Yeah. So you either end up universalistic or you think that Jesus, like us, has a batting average on prayer. Some of his prayers get answered and some don't. Mm. That's why I tend to believe when Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Every, everyone that Jesus is intending as he's praying for there is, in, is going to end up in heaven. Everyone. Because so what's the point in being forgiven partially? Father, for, forgive them for this, but don't forgive them for anything else. It doesn't make any sense. Wow. And so, therefore, if Jesus prays for you in this sense, you're going to heaven. He doesn't swing and miss on prayer. So, this is clear indication. His prayer is focused on specific people. He's praying for the elect. Now, here we have to understand the priestly ministry of Jesus. Mm. Who he, he um, offers blood for, like in the Levitical priest sense, those are the ones he prays for and vice versa. Those he prays for, those are the ones he offers blood for. All of that action as a priest is effective, not ineffective. Mm. It is effective. So who he sheds his blood for, those are the ones he prays for. Who he prays for, those are the ones he, shed, he sheds his blood for, those people get saved. Mm. And that points toward definite atonement, toward him dying only for the elect. So he doesn't pray for everyone, he prays for the elect whom the Father gave out of the world. Now, for our Arminian brothers and, and sisters, our Arminian friends, we would ask them, what does John 17, 9 mean to you? Why doesn't Jesus pray for the whole world? Why wouldn't he pray if Jesus really wants the whole world to be saved? Why doesn't he pray for the whole world? Mm. It's a helpful question and a helpful verse for us in our understanding of how Jesus uh, prays and how Jesus saves. Mm -hmm. So verse 10 says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Mm -hmm. Does verse 10, would you use this to prove the deity of Christ? Mm -hmm. And how had the disciples brought glory to the Son here? Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is this is uh, Trinitarian language. Everything I have is yours, Father. Everything mm -hmm. you have is mine. Mm -hmm. and that includes glory as God, which he prayed for earlier. So that's all. And now these people, the, the elect, they're yours. You gave them to me. Uh, they're mine. I'm giving them back to you. We share this completely. It's a complete sharing between the Father and the Son. And we would add the Spirit. The Father, Son, and the Spirit share the elect together. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. What does Jesus ask for from the Father in verse 11? Um, he asked for, uh, for God to protect the elect. This, is, this actually, if you think about it, will bring goosebumps. We are in overwhelming, intense danger here, Wes, you and I, and all of God's people. Mm -hmm. From the world of flesh and the devil, if we could see the demons, if we could see Satan, if we could understand their malevolence, it, it is, it's almost like you imagine some parents dropping a toddler off that has been walking for six months in the median strip of an eight-lane superhighway and driving off. Uh, it would be criminal negligence. Jesus leaving us here in the world with Satan ruling the world is more dangerous than that, except for one thing, and that's the sovereign power of God and that's enough. So he said, I protected them, I kept them safe, now I'm asking you, Father, protect them, 
keep them. And the protection has to do with our salvation, that we would not be lost spiritually. Mm. And we're going to find out in John 18 how practical that is when Jesus is being arrested. It has to do with a filtering of our trials, our arrests, the things that happen that we would not end up lost. I think one of the most foundational insights so far in this passage as we've looked at this has been that idea that Jesus gets what he prays for. Mm -hmm. Because that just, that adds so much weight and gravity mm -hmm. to these words as we read them and think, yeah. Jesus asked for that. Yeah. Jesus gets what he asks for. And I think also for, for me, the, what's really pressed on me is the thing I said to you over the last minute or so, realizing I'm in danger. And so is every brother and sister that I know. And so that we should pray seriously like Jesus. Father, protect this person. We shouldn't just say, ah, oh, once saved, always saved, they're going to end up in heaven. No, no, no. Let's pray for people's faith that it will not fail. Mm. That they will keep believing in Jesus. That they'll keep, that I'm going to get up and preach on Sunday that people's faith won't fail and they'll keep believing in Jesus. Yeah. Verse 11 ends with this soaring prayer mm -hmm. for unity. That they mm -hmm. may be one even as we are one. Now, as we look around, I think mm -hmm. it's hard for us to see that level of unity. Yeah. Frequently or at all sometimes. Yeah. Has Jesus' prayer somehow failed? We just said like, obviously, <laughs> no. Right, obviously <laughs> no. But we look around and we're like, yeah. man, this is, this is this the way the Father and the Son interact? Right, well, we're gonna talk more about it in the next one, God willing. Um, there's a progress toward unity mm -hmm. that puts the gospel on display, but mm -hmm. then there's that ultimate perfect unity which will only be achieved at glorification in mm -hmm. heaven when we will think and love and be alike with one another, and our unity will be patterned after the Trinity. So this really has to do with ultimate salvation, and he is praying that none of us would be lost, and we would all end up in that perfectly one place with our oneness patterned after the Trinity. Hmm. So finally, in verse 12, Jesus speaks again of keeping and guarding all whom the Father has given to him, with one notable exception. Yes. Does Judas's destruction prove that one can lose their salvation? No, it doesn't. Um, uh, you know, he was, he said, have I not chosen you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? That's in John 6. Hmm. So he knew Judas not would become a devil, but was already a devil. And so, no, his essential nature had never changed. What, what Judas teaches us is how much a hypocrite can look like a regular Christian. Here's another thing. John 17, 12 is vital for understanding universalism is false. There is someone in hell. And as a matter of fact, I believe Judas is the only person that I can give you a name that his parents gave him, the name by which he was known on earth that is presently in hell. And that includes Adolf Hitler. Hmm. I don't have any, any final pronouncement to make about any individual that they are in hell but I do believe people are in hell. I do, do believe the overall majority, majority of people that have ever lived and now have died are in hell because of, you know, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads mm -hmm. to destruction and many enter through it. I just don't know who they are for certain. That's not given to us to know. But this one doomed to destruction has been lost and he's, he will be in hell. Uh, mm -hmm. At this point, Judas isn't dead yet, but he is lost. The last phrase that we've got here in these first 12 verses that we're looking at says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. what, does, what does that show us? Yeah, so Judas's um, betrayal was predicted in Psalm 69 and other places. He who shared my bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Mm -hmm. Jesus quoted that, uh, or John quoted that in reference to Jesus, um, etc. So that was predicted that Jesus would be betrayed and now it's been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. 
Andy, any final thoughts on these first 12 verses that we've looked at? Yeah, just incredible uh, to go over these things and realize, first of all, we do need to follow Jesus and imitate him in prayer, but we're weak and we don't pray as we should. Just understand this. Jesus, your great high priest, is at the right hand of God and ever lives to intercede for you. He's praying like this Mm -hmm. for you. And so that's powerful. That's amazing. This has been part two of episode 35 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 36 entitled Jesus High Priestly Prayer, where we'll discuss John chapter 17, verses 13 through 26. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.